Ezekiel chapter 37. And you know what, Mitchell? I forgot the two sticks. I left them at home. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I asked him to go pick out two sticks in the yard so that I could uh, uh, use them tonight, and then I forgot them. So, unfortunately. So, if anybody happens to have two sticks in their pocket, maybe, boys, maybe. Oh, no. Oh, well. In a, in a different day and age, maybe that would have been true, but not today. Um, Ezekiel 37, you know, um, there's one source of pain that all of us can identify with. One, one thing that all of us know good and well, pretty much throughout our lives, and it's the pain of a broken relationship. Maybe you remember the tragedy of a breakup in school. Middle school sweethearts dating one day broken up the next, or maybe the same day in some cases. Maybe it was a terrible fight with a sibling or a parent or a child. Maybe you've lived with the heartache of a divorce. I, there's just no pain quite like a broken relationship, is there? Now, imagine a broken relationship that's been going on uh, for centuries between two closely related peoples. Picture a fallout between brothers where one group rebels against the other. Add on a few centuries, pepper in some skirmishes along the border and periods of internal conflict and you have the nature of the divided kingdom of Israel. To set the stage tonight, we're going to go back before Ezekiel's day. In fact, we're going to go back to the death of Solomon. Israel was at its height. It was more politically important than ever in its history. It had greater wealth within its control than it had at any other time in history. Israel was in its golden days. But when Solomon died, when he had died, he had consolidated much of the wealth, much of the power in Jerusalem, the capital. Jerusalem, just if you look at a map, it's only maybe 15 miles from the very top part of the Dead Sea, due west, but it's thousands of feet in difference, elevation-wise. But if you look overall in the, at the countryside of Israel, you'll see that it's toward the south end. It's, it's pretty far away from some of the north, and part of the problem in Solomon's day was that there was so much wealth amassed and so much political power in this one place that what often tends to happen, people start to get tired of this. People start to look upon the seat of power as being a, a bad place and those good-for-nothing folks that are there. Y'all don't know anything about that, do you? I mean, we don't experience that here in America. We, don't, we never say anything bad about Washington, D.C. or or the people that are in charge of our country, do we? Um, yeah, that's what happens. That's what tends to happen. And Solomon, in order to do these great massive projects that Solomon had, expanding the temple and expanding uh, uh, the place where he lived and expanding the city of Jerusalem and expanding and expanding and expanding, uh, required a lot of wealth, and that wealth didn't always come from outside. Sometimes it came from a pretty high tax burden. And that's what, that's what really sparked this particular rebellion. There was a guy by the name of Jeroboam. 
Jeroboam thought, here's our chance. Solomon has died. His, Solomon had had it out for Jeroboam because Jeroboam was already kind of a rebel and was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so he had to flee to, Is, to Egypt to escape Solomon. And finally, when Solomon dies, Jeroboam says, this is my chance. I'm going to come back and I'm going to lead a group of people. We'll go and talk to Rehoboam. We'll try to establish some diplomacy and maybe, just maybe, we can improve the living conditions up here in the north. So a group joins with Jeroboam and they asked Rehoboam to lighten the tax burden. They said, we will, we will honor you, we will serve you, but these taxes are so heavy. We need a break. We, we, we got, you got to lighten this load on us. Rehoboam says, give me a couple days to think about it. All right. And so Rehoboam does something very smart, something very wise. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? Verse 7. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. In other words, the old men basically told him, look, here's your chance to win the hearts of the people. If you will just do this matter for them, they will be devoted to you. You can ask them to do whatever you want them to do. If you just serve them in this way, lighten their burden and they will be yours. You'll have them eaten out of your hand for the rest of your kingship. That's good advice. A king should be sensitive to his people and to the groanings of his people especially, right? So this sounds like very good advice and Rehoboam is wise to seek it out, but he's not wise enough to obey it. Verse 8 but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So he didn't listen to the old guys who were counseling his father, who his father probably told him as he's growing up, you got to listen to these folks. They know what they're talking about. He says, instead, I'm going to ask my buddies. Now, you're young if you're old it doesn't matter you're going to tell the truth anyway because you're too old to care you kill me i've already lived a life I'm, I'm done anyway you know but but when you're young you don't have that attitude you're going to butter up the king you're going to say what you think he wants to hear you're going to give advice that goes along with his inclination. He's already got the inclination not to listen. Otherwise, he would have just done what the old men said. So they know he, he wants a reason. He wants a reason to do something different. So they give him that reason. They give him that advice. And he does that. Instead of lightening their burden, he makes it heavier. He says, you thought it was bad under my father. Just wait till you get the tax bill when I send it to you. You thought it was bad before, just wait till my iron fist rules over you. And what happens? The nation splits. This is how the writer of 
1 Kings puts it, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. They split. One kingdom is now two. Let that sink in for a second. Get the gravity of this situation. What should be one nation under God now two nations fighting each other. All this background gives us a clear footing for the passage tonight. Ezekiel chapter 37. We have just been in the valley of the dry bones. And as soon as he comes out of the valley, there's another word from God. I want you to picture, because I didn't bring them, you'll have to imagine in your mind, two sticks. Picture two sticks. Now, Ezekiel is a sign prophet. He doesn't just tell you what God said. He often shows you what God said. In fact, some uh, one guy that I was reading equated the sign prophecies that Ezekiel gives, that God gives through Ezekiel, and equated that to John's view of the works of Christ as signs of his Messiahship. How John talks about these signs are written that you may believe. That John is riffing off of Ezekiel, so to speak, of pulling that idea of signs and showing how Christ is fulfilling the signs that show that he is the Messiah. But Ezekiel is a sign prophet. He, he, he gives God's message is not just through the words that he speaks, but also through the actions that he does. And this is one of those times. So let's hear God's word from Ezekiel. Verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah. And the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Okay? So here's the sign. One stick is labeled for Judah. One stick is labeled for Israel or for Joseph. And he puts them together in his hand as one stick. Now, he's not really telling you why he's doing this. He's just doing it. And I don't know about you, but when people do weird things, my interest gets peaked. Y'all ever do that? You see someone doing something weird and you want to just look around for another minute and figure out what, what's really going on here? Yeah, this is why uh, if you go to New Orleans, <laughs> you don't take like you keep your wallet in your pocket and you keep your hand over your wallet, right? You know, so that while you're watching some guy stare, stand still for 10 minutes, nobody's pickpocketing you, you know? That's, you, you, yeah, you don't want to be that kind of, yeah. The weird things get our attention. The things that we don't expect, the things that are so far out of the ordinary often pique our interest and make us want to look and find out what's going on here. That's why certain people, when I was in college, would wear shirts that would have phrases written in other languages so that, so that folks would ask them, what does that mean? What is that? 
And they would give them the opportunity to, you know, one, one group had, uh, he is risen in Greek. And if you've ever seen Greek, it doesn't quite, you know, it, it, it kind of catches your eye because it's so different. Uh, the letters are different. And so that's what they did. That, that was one way that they shared Christ because your interest is peaked. You want to know what is that all about? That's what he's doing here. He's got these two sticks. He puts them together in his hand, and he's not explaining anything, and it's to pique their interest, and their interest does get piqued. Look in verse 18. And when they ask you, and when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Because they're going to do that. They're going to ask, what does all this mean? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you ride are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall rule over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. What's happening here is God says, all right, they're going to ask you what's going on. Now is your chance. Now you can tell them what's going on. Here's what I'm doing. I'm taking the people of Israel and I'm reuniting them with Judah. Get what this means. It's a message of reconciliation. God promises to reunite two groups of people who are formally ostracized from each other together again. Think of what this means. Ten tribes. The ten tribes of the north who are scattered about, sometimes called the lost tribes of Israel because over time they just vanish. They intermarry with other peoples and they become a whole different breed of people. Where do you think the Samaritans came from? You know, the Samaritans, the ones the Jews hated, that Jesus used as an example of being a neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the, like the, the woman at the well who no, no Jewish man, no self-respecting Jewish man would ever be found talking to a Samaritan woman at a well, nonetheless asking her for water to drink. And he goes further. He not only asks her for water to drink, but he tells her, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for drink, and you'd never thirst again. Those Samaritans, those Samaritans that were written off by the Jews as half-breeds, those Samaritans, some of them came from this intermarriage between the lost tribes of Israel and other peoples who were brought into the area. Some of them were gone long lost thousands of miles away in different places. When um, the kingdom of Assyria took over the northern kingdoms, Tiglath-Pelesar III and, and the kings that followed him, what they liked to do when they took over people is they would take up a whole bunch of folks from that area and, and almost like seeds, they throw them out in different countries. It's like, here, you're going to move way over here. You're going to move way over there. You're going to move way over there. That's how they quashed rebellion. 
Because if you leave this group of people together, they're going to get the same idea to fight you again. And we don't want to deal with that. So we're going to take you and we are going to completely eliminate your ethnic heritage by spreading you out all over the place. And we don't care if we break up families. We don't care. We don't care if we break up towns. And we don't care if we break up friendships. And we don't care. We're going to squash rebellion. And so these folks had been scattered for miles and miles and miles around. Some of them may have gone to Africa, some up to Europe, some into Asia, all over the place. Those ten tribes who are scattered about throughout all the nations will be reclaimed. God's saying, not only am I going to make this one nation, I'm going to bring the folks that have been taken out, the descendants of folks who have been scattered all over the place, and I'm going to bring them back. One of the objections that people have to this idea of rapture is how, how, are, how is God, God going to put the body together again to be resurrected? Think that's too little a thing for God? Look, I, I may not know everything, but I know enough to know that God is capable of figuring out which pieces of dust belong to you and which pieces of dust belong to somebody else. I mean, here's the God who knows how to find a worm when he needs one to eat a gourd tree to teach a prophet a lesson. Here's a God that knows. Here's a God that, ha that creates stuff just by calling it, and it has to exist in order to answer him. He says light, and light has to come into being in order to respond, and it does. Don't you think, don't you think God can handle something like that? I, th I think God can handle something like that. He's going to take these ten tribes that are scattered throughout all over the place and he's going to bring them back home. Not only that, he's going to take this fractured people that really have no reason to get along and he's going to make them get along. Turn them into one nation with one purpose. God's going to take many and make them into one. What's the Latin phrase? E pluribus unum. Out of many one. See, that's what God is actually going to do. One day when this prophecy comes true, this is part that hasn't been fulfilled yet. He's going to take, he has already taken some and brought them back. But he hasn't gotten them all yet. And one day, he's going to get the rest of them and bring them back. And when he does that, he's going to take that Latin phrase that we call our national motto, and he's going to bring it into life in a way that we could have never dreamed. Our forefathers could have never dreamed of God doing such a great work as he's going to do. Just as he made the man into Lot and the wife into one flesh. Just as he takes many members and makes one body, the church. You see, God, God is capable of turning the many into one. Jesus prayed, Lord, make them one even as I 
He would take two kingdoms and unite them into one kingdom. Now, in order to do that, that, that's not just a political thing. You can't just do that on a political level. There's got to be something deeper. There's got to be something that's undergirding that. In fact, you actually have to change the nature of sticks because if I were to hold two sticks in my hand together as one and tell you this is one stick and then I let go, it would still be two sticks. They would fall apart. There's got to be something that changes in the nature of the sticks that makes them one. That's what's going to happen. Look, look in verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. They no longer engage in the actions that led to their downfall in the first place. God promised that he would save them from their idolatrous practices, save them from their obvious oppression of the poor and the needy. He would end, he would stop, he would cease all of their wicked ways. Cleanse them from their wretched, sinful nature. They would be his people. That's who they were always meant to be. And he would be their God. If that wasn't enough... <laughs> They keep on going. Verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. That's a, that's a messianic promise. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. You know, you know the command that is most often given in the book of Deuteronomy is to be careful to obey the laws and the statutes and the commands which I am giving you today. Make sure you do this. Do it. Make sure you do it. Make sure you do this. Make sure you are careful to do this. This people would be fundamentally changed from a people who are stiff-necked and disobedient to ones who would intentionally and specifically seek to obey God's commands. That's a change in nature, not just a change in their actions. Verse 25, they will dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They, will, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Do you notice the permanency of that? This isn't a temporary sojourning. This isn't a semi-permanent uh, settling in for a while. This is a permanent dwelling they will dwell there permanently. Their children and their children's children will dwell there permanently. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Do you see it? It's a permanent thing. A testimony to the ongoing faithfulness to God to fulfill his promises from generation to generation to generation. One of the things that God says in Deuteronomy is that if a man disobeys my commands, that I will visit his iniquities upon him even to the third and the fourth generation. But if a man loves me, 
I show steadfast love to thousands of generations. Do you see the permanence? Not only this, their relationship with God will change. Verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. We've already talked about a covenant of peace. And we've talked about the importance of a covenant in establishing relationships. I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. You see, there's more permanence there. Not only will they dwell permanently, he will dwell permanently with them. The covenant would stand the test of time. He would be in their midst forever just as they were to be in his midst forever. God repeats that in in verse 27, what he said at the end of 23. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. When God seeks to impact a people, they never return to the way they were before. They're totally different. They're irrevocably changed. That's the message of the two sticks. You can't get those sticks to form one stick unless you radically change both of them. And that's what God's going to do. He's going to take the group of people who are not his people and he is going to be their God and they are going to be his people and he is going to transform them into the way that they need to be in order for them to live up to what they were supposed to be in the first place. God never designs us to follow him the way we are. He takes us the way we are. But praise God, he doesn't leave us that way. God changes his people to end the fractured nature of 12 tribes and make them one. That's the difference God makes. Why? Why would God take people so far apart and bond them together? I think you already know the answer. At least you should. If you've been paying attention at all during this series, you do. Verse 28. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Why does he do this? To get the glory he deserves. Because he's God. There's a whole lot of people that need to know that. Why would God go through so much trouble with uniting people who have nothing in common except for him like I don't know maybe a church I mean no offense but I stick out like a sore thumb among you folks I mean I'm so old and you're not I, I except for George um, I there would be no reason other than Christ there would be no reason for us really know each other I don't live in Prattville I live in in Deetsville because 
big enough anyway. I mean, there's not very many people in Deedsville, but it's so big. There's more cows than people in Deedsville. I think it's the largest zip code in the state. You would know. <laughs> Your post office experience. Yeah. It may have been. I don't know. You may not trust that guy. He's... <laughs> But the fact remains that without Christ, we really don't have a reason to know each other. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have. I met none of you before coming to this church. And y'all's lives would be so much more boring without me, wouldn't it? Mine would not be nearly as great without y'all. The fellowship that we share together is not just a chance to eat together, though though eating together is a lot of fun. It's not just a chance to laugh with each other, share some jokes. We're building each other to become more like Christ. And see, that's the funny thing. God takes people who are so dramatically different and he turns them into a cohesive whole And in doing that, he gets glory. Because how can you take people so dramatically different? How can you take people who have such different interests, live such different lives, like different foods, sing different songs? How can you take people that have nothing in common and make them one? God's work. So let's go back to those broken relationships. Let's go back to those bitter divorces and those breakups that broke your heart when you were in seventh grade. Or at least broke it for a day or two. Let's go back to those fights with parents or children spouses or siblings or whoever. If he is a God that can take a people scattered all over the place and bring them together and make them one, then he is a God who can heal your broken relationship. We talk a lot about trusting Christ with our lives, trusting him with our eternities. That's certainly important. Would you trust him with a co-worker that you just can't stand to be around? Would you trust him with a neighbor that doesn't know how to mow his grass? Would you trust him with a person who thinks that their job is to annoy you get under your skin would you trust them with that person that's trying to use you for their own advantage would you trust them with someone who likes the other football team 
trust them with a spouse that doesn't know how to put the toilet paper on right. My point is, when relationships are broken, do you trust in God to mend them? Do you just stew in bitterness and anger for a while? What do you do? If Ezekiel 37 tells me anything, from the valley of dry bones to the the handful of two sticks, it tells me that God can do whatever he wants to do, no matter how hopeless the situation. I think we all need to trust him. We're going to do something slightly different tonight to close. I'm going to pray and remember. We're going to sing a, a, a song in your hymnal. You can go ahead and turn there. It's song. It's hymn number one. 815, I think 815 is the right rendition. It's called the doxology. And what I want you to do tonight, before we, before we sing, while we're praying, I want you to call to mind that person. Maybe, maybe you've got a broken relationship with. Maybe, maybe you're... You're not the one with the problem. Maybe they are. That's okay. I'm going to ask you to pray for that person. Pray that God would use you to bring healing. Pray that God would use you to mend that broken relationship. Pray that he would make that possible. He would do the unifying. Let's pray together. Father, when we, when we have broken relationships, God, it's easy to blame the other person and think, oh, well, if they just did what they were supposed to do, God, it's easy to look at them and say, they did this, they did this, they did that. I tried, but they... And, and, it's, and it's so tempting to put all the blame on them. First of all, Father, I... I ask you to convict us when we're wrong. Show us when we are the ones breaking the relationship. Show us the actions that we've done to make things worse. Maybe they put a tear and we've ripped it wide open. Maybe we started the tear. And they're the ones making it bigger. Maybe, maybe God, we need to confess to you our sin and confess to them how we're wrong. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. God, I pray that we would seek forgiveness from those we have wronged. Father, I pray that you would forgive them where they're wrong. 
Lord, we know you are the God who mends broken relationships. And so, Lord, we trust you. Lead us to do the things we need to do. Make things right. To bring healing. And most of all, bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray.